Anyone make a Christmas list this year? Really, not many. I'm in my 30s, and my parents still ask for a Christmas list. They're in their 60s, and they send them back to me in return. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to see what kids write on their Christmas list? So I hope you enjoy this. Dear Santa, how are you? Well, enough chit-chat. Let's get down to business. This year I want. He gets right into it, and look what he asks for. I don't know if you can read that on the screen. An AK-47 assault rifle. I don't know how old this child is. That might be a little bit too much. Here's another one. Here's a Christmas list. I want a yak and a Furby. Boom. Oh, and a hundred of yak food and an ama baby and a few other things besides. This other child, they really care about Santa. Dear Santa, how are you? How's your reindeer? If you cannot buy what I want, take it easy on yourself and just give me tens and ones of money. <laughs> this little girl, if you're on social media, uh, has gone in, uh, viral. She asked for an iPhone 11, AirPods, and a new MacBook Air. She writes, new MacBook Air. Mom and Dad, none of this refurbished trash. New or bust. Three items in, that's over $3,000. Her next few requests a little bit more normal, a bunny, a hydro flask, clothes, makeup, pink pajamas. And then she gets into Gucci slides and a Chanel purse. I looked this up online, a Chanel purse, a coin purse, about the same size as the average man's wallet, $700. If this isn't enough, she says a couple more things before dropping this big idea. Oh, by the way, mom and dad, can I have a cool $4,000? <laughs> At this time, I'd like to point out this girl is 10 years old. So good luck to her future husband. Let's ask a question. If these kids got everything they asked for, would they actually be more joyful? I think at first most of them would. Just to be safe, I wouldn't buy that first child his assault rifle because who knows where that would go. But if your son opened up uh, his new Lego or uh, your daughter their new doll, they'd probably be pretty happy about that. For, for how long? Yeah, mom and dad, this Lego is great, but where's my yak? I asked for a yak. You buy your daughter a phone and she says to you, Mom and Dad, this isn't the phone I asked for. I wanted a different make and model. You buy your son a PlayStation 4 and he goes, Great, where's the game I wanted? You buy your child a $50 gift card to their favorite store and they said, Last year you got me 100 bucks. Why are you cheaping out this year, Mom and Dad? Maybe I'm picking on kids too much. Are we thankful when our employer gives us that time off between Christmas and New Year's? Or do we just say to ourselves, it's expected, he's done it the last five years, why wouldn't he do it this year? Hey boss, where's my Christmas bonus? I remember one year my dad came home and he was frustrated. He bought, uh, he uh, had a, a number of people working for him and he bought them all a pizza lunch. And he said, Dave, some guys came up to me afterwards and said, pizza? Why are you cheaping out? We wanted roast beef and mashed potatoes. It was a free lunch, and they were complaining. Are we joyful for what we have, or only when we get exactly what we want? Now, allow me to throw a wrench into it. Everything I've mentioned has been positive. Bonuses, time off, free meals. What happens when we get exactly what we don't want?
true story. I have been laid off on Christmas Eve. Walked into the shop at 8 a.m. or whatever time I started. Boss invites me into his office. I honestly thought I was getting a bonus. It just came in the form of more time off in a little pink slip. A few years ago, before I got married, I was home for Christmas. On Christmas Day, minus 25, minus 30, Dad's furnace broke. On Christmas Day, will we be joyful even when life gets difficult? Some of you this year will be having an incredibly difficult Christmas. It'll be your first Christmas without your loved one. Some of you hear that song, it's the most wonderful time of year, and there's just this simmering rage when you think, it's my least favorite time of year. Some of you would love to buy presents, but you're thinking, I'm just hopeful to put some food on the table this Christmas. So when we think of those four major themes at Christmas of faith and hope and joy and love, it feels more like wishful thinking than a promise. In a sermon series called Christmas Unlimited, is it even possible? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Philippians chapter 4. If you're here in the main auditorium and you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, if you're in Renew or you'd like a Bible with you at all times, by all means, you can download the app, bible.com app. That's across all sorts of devices. Uh, the, book of the, uh, the Bible can be a little bit difficult to find, but um, when you open up your uh, Bible, look at the table of contents, you'll find the book of Philippians, flip to that page number, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. We're in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. And as you're flipping there, a couple things to think about. I was looking online this past week about all the different series and ideas and titles that different churches give the book of Philippians. I found things like rejoice or unchained or humility. One said think. Mel's been talking about that over the last couple of weeks. And they all go along with our theme, unlimited. One of the churches even said, Philippians, the basics of the Christian faith. And I think all of these work it feels like there's a buildup to what's happening here. Writing from prison, Paul is reflecting on his imprisonment, and while he may be chained up, he says the gospel, the good news, certainly isn't. And that's where you see that unchained and unlimited. Think of everything that can be possible here. In chapter 2, we have the beautiful passage that's commonly referred to as the Christ hymn, where, Jesus, uh, where Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And you can't help but think about that incredible show of humility. As we read the first verses of chapter 4, whether you follow along or close your eyes and just listen, see if you can hear a constant theme, a repetition that's taking place. This is Philippians 4, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, brothers and sisters... You whom I love and long for my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause for the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Did you hear it? can be a little bit difficult to pick out, but here's what it says in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. And then in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And if you're taking notes, here's the big idea this morning. Joy and peace are not found in our circumstances, but in the God who meets us there. When we read that powerful line in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. This isn't Paul saying, here's a good idea for you. Here's something to think about. This is actually a command. 
before you look at me and say, Dave, stop living in some unrealistic utopia. That doesn't actually exist. Rejoice doesn't mean we walk around with some sort of permanent grin on our face. It means you understand the bigger picture. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. He's not on a beach in Mexico sipping a mojito with his laptop in front of him thinking, how should I encourage the people in Philippi? He's in prison writing to a church he knows and loves. He says, rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. So how do we embrace an unlimited joy and peace during the holiday season? Here's the first point. Join Team Ellerslie. My house is a very open concept. You walk into the front door, uh, immediately you see the kitchen to your right, right behind that uh, is the dining room and to the left, the living room. And on our kitchen counter, we have a little board, it's about eight inches square, and it says, we are Team Schmidt. This past week, my five-year-old, who's my oldest, uh, got to help out in the school office. And one of the receptionists there says, so what's your name? And he goes, Beckham Schmidt. I'm part of Team Schmidt. And the receptionist was so impressed that when uh, she purposely made a point of going up to my wife and saying, he said he's part of Team Schmidt. Through thick and thin, through good and bad, we are Team Schmidt. Verses three and four, I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche, agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When Paul would write these letters, they would be sent to the churches, they would be sent to the individuals, and they would be read aloud in front of the entire congregation. Yodia and Syntyche would be sitting in the same room, their names read aloud. And here's Paul's point. A church divided is a terrible witness. And he's saying to the Philippians, and he's saying to all the churches, and 2,000 years later, he's saying to Ellerslie, how does sticking to our guns, how does holding grudges, how does giving people what they deserve result in joy? Momentary enjoyment, maybe, but lasting satisfaction, not at all. Yodia, Syntyche, you're part of Team Philippi. Start acting like it. And you, loyal yoke fellow, my true companion in Clement, and everybody else, work it out. We're in this together. We're on the same team, all of us here working together for the glory of Jesus. About two years ago, Pastor Mel approached the board with a bold strategy. And he said to the board, we've been fighting the worship wars for too long. What if we renovate our gymnasium? What if we add some storage? What if we blitz out that gym and we become one church with two distinct styles of worship, traditional and contemporary? It's probably going to cost half a million dollars. So the board started talking about it. The staff started talking about it. We had congregational meetings to talk about it. And one particular story comes to mind. While most of the church was really positive and excited, yeah, let's go forward with this, there were some people who thought, well, hold your horses. What does this mean? An older couple who wasn't quite in favor of this direction came to Pastor Mel and they said, hey, Mel, can we talk about this? 
They weren't angry, they weren't bitter, but they just wanted to express their concerns about what was taking place. And Mel said, come on in, let's make a time, let's talk together and we'll figure this out. Smell listened to what they had to say. He saw maturity with their attitude. And he said, now can I share with you why it is I think we should do this? And he cast a vision. He said, imagine all generations worshiping together. Wouldn't you love if your kids and your grandkids came to church and loved what was taking place? That there was a music that you enjoyed, a music they enjoyed, and it would be a beautiful place for all of us to worship together. And after that hour or so that they spent together, they were all in on Team Ellerslie. Not only that, they said, we are going to commit financially to making this happen. At the upcoming congregational meeting, they didn't stand at the front, but they sat in the seats where you are right now, and they stood up and they said, this is why we think it's so important. All in on Team Ellerslie. You see, God has met us in the midst of the circumstances. Over the last 14 months, our tech numbers have more than tripled. Numbers are growing upstairs so much so that we had to shift service times so that we would actually have space for our kids' ministry. Kyle and Gabe doing a tremendous job with youth on Friday nights, and our numbers slowly growing. And you might think, Dave, it's not all about numbers. You're totally right. We're seeing lives change through baptisms, through people wanting to serve, in excitement across all ages of people inviting those to church, including them when they come, and saying, I'm going to invest in what takes place. We can celebrate that there's over a thousand people who came to Bright Lights last night, and I think that's wonderful. Did you know that more than 120 people volunteered? I was seeing people in green aprons and green lanyards and green shirts that I had never met before. I said, hey, I'm Dave. I work here. What's your name? Because everyone was all in on Team Ellerslie. So what is God doing at our church and how can you join in what's taking place? Maybe that means serving at Christmas Eve. Maybe that means inviting your friends to join with you and sit in Christmas Eve. Maybe it means making a special investment during the holiday season. Or like Paul's words in verses 3 and 4, it might mean saying, I believe so much in the mission of this church that when people speak poorly of my church, I want to tell them what's happening and get them excited as well. So how do we find that peace and joy? It's not always in our circumstances, but in the God that meets us there. So what do we do? Choose joy. Verses four and five, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. You might be familiar with the seven deadly sins. Those are what's posted on the screen behind me. Anger, pride, lust, gluttony, envy, sloth, and greed. But did you know that this list wasn't actually seven to begin with? It was eight. The seven deadly sins go back to the Middle Ages, but even before then, the eighth deadly sin was dropped along the way. And it went back to the earliest church leaders in the early centuries just following Jesus. What was the eighth deadly sin? Chosen sadness. The opposite of joy. The early church fathers viewed chosen sadness as a plague on the soul. We're not talking about clinical depression. We're talking about someone who purposely has a bad attitude, who's continually pessimistic, who doesn't think good things are ever going to happen. What if we choose joy? Two years ago, my dad called me with news that I didn't want to hear. His brother, the uncle that I was closest to, was in the intensive care unit at the hospital. 
And he said, Dave, if you don't go now, you might not get to see your uncle alive again. So I arrived in the ICU, the first and only time I've been there. And my uncle's behind this glass room. I have to put a hairnet on, a special isolation gown, surgical gloves, the whole nine yards. It was not a pleasant scene. My uncle's lying on the bed. He's got hoses coming all parts of his body. He's got a mask on. And I walk in and the nurse, not mean, but very firmly, who are you and what are you doing here? I'm about to answer when my uncle takes off his mask and he says, this is my pastor. He's come to pray with me. With a big smile on his face, he said, Dave, how are you doing? He asked about me. He wasn't worried about death because he knew exactly where he was going. He wasn't worried about his wife because he knew she was financially taken care of and the church family would care for her wonderfully. He chose joy when life was miserable. Back in 2011, a book came out that grabbed the attention of many pastors. And the book was entitled, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And you might not know this, it's, uh, the church isn't an even 50-50 split with 50% men, 50% women. It's actually about 55 to 60% women and 40 to 45% men. And so the question came out, well, why do men hate coming to church? And you don't need to be a sociologist to figure out the reasons why, for the most part. A lot of men don't necessarily want to stand up and sing. They don't want to be talk, uh, talk about their feelings all the time. And some men just say, the pastor doesn't get it. He doesn't know where I'm coming from. And so we read this line, let your gentleness be evident to all. And some people might roll their eyes and go, okay, whatever does that mean? The word we translate as gentle means an animal that has been tamed or brought under control. You know what it's called when a horse trainer tames a wild stallion? Gentled. This isn't about being soft and weak. It's about keeping your strength and energy under control. And as a friend of mine said to me this morning, it's the incarnation. Here is Jesus Christ with all of this power who becomes nothing, taking on human flesh and the appearance of a baby. This is a man who protects his wife, not abuses her, a man who builds up his children, not tears them down, a man who cares for his workers, not takes advantage of them, who helps those less fortunate himself and not makes fun of them. It's a wife who speaks well of her husband in front of her friends and doesn't tear him down, a mother who is patient with her children and slow to anger, a woman powerful in the workplace and not just a girl who uses all her gifts, talents, and abilities for the glory of Jesus and the enhancement of her workplace. We choose joy and peace, not because of our circumstances, but because of the God who meets us there. Verses six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you in this room have probably been struggling with anxiety over the last 20 years. And you might be thinking, Dave, this is a nice promise, but unlimited joy? Is that a pipe dream? 
The statistics on anxiety are absolutely staggering. 18% of American adults struggle with anxiety. Anxiety, not depression, is the leading issue among American youth and will affect 40% of students, not at any given time, but going through junior high and high school will affect 40% of students. Coming out of UCLA, 63% of college students felt overwhelming anxiety in this past year. The numbers are staggering. On a Sunday morning, we average about 500 English-speaking adults. That means 100 people in that foyer are struggling with anxiety. If you have a college student living in your house right now, there's a good chance that in the midst of finals, they are highly stressed out. For the grandparents in this room, if you have five grandkids going through their teenage years, two of them struggle with anxiety at some point. Like many issues that we discuss in church, we can talk about the two ditches. One ditch is only medicine will help. I struggle with anxiety, let's go to a doctor, let's get the pills, we'll get this figured out. That's not the right way to go. But the other ditch is just as bad. Only God will help. And we say such terrible things like, well, only if you had faith you'd get better. Please don't say that. Both ditches equally destructive and show a complete lack of understanding that the individual who is suffering and genuinely is asking for help. Well, thankfully, not all theological terms have five syllables and some are really easy to remember. And there's a theological idea called common grace. Common grace goes something like this, rain. Rain doesn't just fall on Christians, it falls on everybody. It helps all the farmer's fields grow. It gives us all a refreshing. It gives a blessing to all people. Another common grace is medicine. And God has given us medicine for people who know him and people who don't to cure the illnesses that we have. And I don't know who needs to hear this right now, but I think it's important to say, anxiety is not a sin. We can't control the thoughts that come to our mind, but we can control what we do with it. And let me give you an example. Wednesday morning, I pull out of my garage. I didn't check the weather the night before, and I go, oh, wow, it snowed quite a bit. There's three inches of snow, and I think to myself, how icy are the roads? I've got to come down a little bit of a hill to get to the church from where I live. The moment of anxiety gave me that heightened level of awareness that was trying to protect me. That bit of anxiety was trying to protect me. So what did I do with it? I decided to drive really slow in my neighborhood. I decided to brake a little bit earlier at traffic lights, and I decided to leave a little bit of space in front of me and the car in front of me. I spoke to a psychologist friend, uh, friend of mine this past week, and she sent me a bunch of notes, including a definition of anxiety, and this is what it said. It's a feeling of worry, of nervousness, of unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Now, if you don't struggle with anxiety, you might look at that definition and think, Dave, isn't, isn't that everybody? So most of us might feel anxiety on icy roads or during the exam time or right before you make a big presentation uh, for a, uh, and a pitch for a new job or more work as a contractor. But that's not what this anxiety is for people who really struggle with it. This is about icy roads, layered with uncertain work situation, layered with not being able to cope with what's going on at home, with a child who's getting divorced. And on and on it goes until the layers become so unmanageable that there's a panic attack or you feel like you just can't cope with life. 
One of my favorite verses in, about love in the Bible is John 13, 34 and 35. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Whether you wrestle with anxiety or this really is the most wonderful time of the year, may we listen deeply and love well. Over the last couple of months, um, we've hired a new church consultant, and he's been working um, a lot with Pastor Mel and the board, but he's also working a little bit with the staff. And he said, okay, staff, I want you to take uh, something called the Berkman. Maybe some of you have taken it before, and uh, so uh, most of our staff filled them out. And it uh, rates you on a number of different categories. And one of the categories is empathy. And I scored an eight on my empathy. And if you're thinking, ah, I know Dave cares for me when we talk. He feels like he's really engaged. It's not eight out of ten. It's eight out of 100. My wife thinks this is hilarious. So does the consultant. And with a big grin on his face, he said, Dave, you're actually really empathetic just for very short periods of time. <laughs> Listen well. Love deeply. Know your limits. If you're talking to someone and you're just overwhelmed and you say, I don't know how to help this individual. Two things really quick. If you know somebody who struggles with anxiety, and this is not demeaning in any way, obviously it comes across in our tone, really simple, ask them, how's your diet, your exercise, and your sleep? For those of you who have grandkids who are going through college, or you have kids who are going through college and they're living in your house right now, they are stressed out. And the more they cram for exams, the less sleep they get, the worse the diet gets, uh, and they just start stressing out. Care for them deeply. As followers of Jesus, we're in this together. If you have friends who are struggling, ask, hey, can I bring you a home-cooked meal? Did you want to talk about what's happening in your life right now? Do you know who Netflix considers their biggest competitor? You might think, oh, it's HBO, it's Crave TV, maybe it's Disney Plus, or maybe you think, oh, you know, it's Apple TV or Amazon. Nope. The chairman of Netflix says our biggest competitor is sleep. So my wife and I were watching Netflix this past week, and at the end of the episode that we watched, I had out my watch, and I timed quickly five seconds before the next episode pops on. Perhaps if you're struggling with anxiety, it means putting away screens. It means putting away social media. It means taking a break from Netflix or whatever you're watching. Second thing, talk to your doctor your pastor, your counselor. If you're struggling with anxiety, we want you to get well. Is unlimited joy and peace actually possible? This passage, this Christmas gift, seems elusive at times, but I believe it absolutely is. Again, verses four and following, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. I recently read a story of a woman who came home and found all five of her children huddled around something that obviously interested them greatly. And as she drew closer, she realized the five kids were playing with five baby skunks. And she yells, children, run! And they did. Each kid grabbed a skunk and ran away. <laughs> it's the essence of worry. 
holding on to something we should have run from. James Emery White says this, at the heart of trust is is releasing where it is that you are worried about, what it is you are worried about. And as we look at what Paul says in verse 6, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Three different words for prayer. Petition, thanksgiving, requests. I think one of the challenges we face right now as a culture is this idea of immediate gratification. You want some popcorn? Throw it in the microwave. You want your favorite show? Turn on Netflix or your PVR. You want an answer? Say, hey, Google, and it'll pop up. I'm waiting for my watch to tell me what. Real life doesn't work that way. We don't become a world-class musician overnight. We don't get to go into an operating room because we took a science class in university. Why do we expect spiritual maturity to be any different? Do I believe unlimited joy and peace are possible? I absolutely do. But I don't think it comes overnight. I think I've shared this story before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but one of the most difficult times, one of the most transforming moments in my life came on my internship. After church one day, a lady walked into my office and she verbally eviscerated me. If I had told you, if I had told her the most vulnerable parts of my life, she could not have been more surgical in how she tore me apart. You're a terrible leader. You're a horrific preacher. You're proud and you're arrogant. There is no evidence of the Spirit in your life. I was done. For the next two weeks, I never left Philippians 4, 4 to 9. That's when I committed this passage to memory and went over its promises over and over and over again, going through these verses, pleading to God for peace, praying for myself, praying for the woman who hurt me, thanking God for all he had done, and presenting my request after request after request before the throne of a great and mighty king. It took two weeks before I could move forward. Two months before that anxiety was manageable and a little over a year before I finally had peace. God isn't a cosmic vending machine where we put in our prayer and out comes the result we want. He's a cosmic king who is inviting us into a life-changing relationship. And like any friendship, the more time you spend on it, the deeper and more robust it comes. The more time you spend with God and Christian community, the more you begin to discover about yourself, the lies we listen to, and the truth that will ultimately set us free. Joy and peace are not found in our circumstance, but in the God who meets us there. When I was in college, I was really curious about spiritual exercises. And the ones you know, Bible and, uh, and prayer are pretty normal. But then I thought, well, what about solitude? What about fasting? But I was really curious about this idea of meditation. And so I approached uh, my mentor and one of the professors at college, and I said, hey, would you be willing to do a directed study one-on-one about Christian meditation? Because I want to learn more about this. The first thing for us to understand is that Eastern meditation, New Age meditation, is an emptying out. Christian meditation is a filling in. And he goes, Dave, I'd love to do that with you. And over one semester of school for three and a half, four months, he gave me a number of books to read, and he asked me every single day to practice meditation. 
to dwell and to think about the peace of God and what it is he's doing in our lives. Friends, it changed my life. The peace that transcends understanding. I love the passage in Matthew 11. Come to me, says Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not just once, but coming back to that ever-flowing fountain again and again and again. So how do we develop these habits It's easy to say, choose joy, but how do we do this? Mel's been talking about this a number of times over the last couple of weeks. Think this way. Finally, brothers, says Paul, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. As good food is necessary for bodily health, good thoughts are necessary for emotional health. There's a theological principle that's at work here. The Lord is good, and the world belongs to him. The Lord is good, and the world belongs to him. Before I came to Ellerslie, I was pastoring at a small rural church just west of the city. And when I told them about the transition coming from small rural Alberta to the big bad city, they were very nervous for me. They said, Dave, the city is bad. It's not a good place to be. So I just played along and I said, then they need Jesus. We need to reclaim that the Lord is good and the world belongs to him. Identity is good in Christ. But identity is not based on our job or our family or our bank account. Work is good, but not when employees are abused. Sports are good, but not the Vancouver Canucks. Stay far away. We need to take into account and enjoy the best the world has to offer. I've had a few different people recently tell me, Dave, have you seen the movie Ford versus Ferrari? It's excellent. Go and enjoy great movies. We have the mountains only a few hours away, and even if it's not possible for you to get there, take a walk down the river valley. It's beautiful. Last night I was reading in bed, and my wife came upstairs, and she said, are you reading a workbook? And I said, yes. And she goes, don't you have to read something about elves and dwarves or something like that? And I said, I should. Currently going through Lord of the Rings. It's an incredible book. Paul mentioned six attributes in rapid succession, and I'm not going to spend much time here, but I think it's worth looking at. Whatever is true, it's the measure of God and the gospel. Jesus Christ came at Christmas. He came on a rescue mission to save you and to save me. Whatever is noble, what is worthy of respect. We look at wise spiritual mentors and leaders, bosses we respect, pastors we love. Whatever is right, defined by God and his character. We think of the fruit of the spirit and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and humility and self-control. We think of pure It has not been tainted by evil. When we look around, we say how beautiful this nature could be. We look at lovely, what is pleasing and truly beautiful, enjoyed by the world at large. When you occasionally go out and treat yourself to a beautiful dinner and think, wow, people can do this with these ingredients. It's just incredible. We think of admirable. Will we focus on the right things? 
You might be familiar with the phrase, life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you react, or as Viktor Frankl puts it, God chooses what we go through, we choose how we go through it. So during this Christmas season, what is threatening to steal your joy and peace? And how can you change the way you think about it? Can you use that filter, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable? Maybe you can't afford Christmas presents this year. Own it. Call your friends or family and send an email and say, it's been a really tough year for me. I can't afford presents. I can barely afford my rent. But you know what? What if we get together? What if we bring a bunch of food and what if we play games and laugh and enjoy each other's company? It's lovely. It's admirable. You're single. Whether you're single as a 20-year-old, whether you're single as a 50-year-old, think about this. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, chose you. You are worthy of his love. You are deeply treasured. You are lovely and beautiful to him. And that's true. And it's pure. You think to yourself, Dave, family's difficult. Christmas is going to be tough. Pray for God's protection. You can read about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 and commit with power and strength to treat your family with love and joy and the fullness of the Spirit. And it's noble and it's honorable. His joy and peace are not found in our circumstances, but in the God who meets us there. Unlimited joy and peace might not come overnight, but with a work in progress, we are reminded that it is a peace of God that transcends understanding. It makes no sense, but the world around us looks at us and says, wow, their life has been changed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. What a joy it is to preach this during the Christmas season. And as we think about such things, may we be reminded about how great and how awesome you are. And may the peace that transcends understanding come because we know there is great joy in following you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.